You're listening to a sermon from Centerpoint Bathgate, available here each week. We hope you enjoy this talk and join us for more, either online or in person at Simpson Primary School Bathgate, any Sunday morning at half past ten. My name is Gordon. I'm the uh, lead pastor of our Edinburgh congregation, and Tom and I are doing a little bit of a pulpit exchange. Uh, he's going to hang out with the millennials, and I'm going to hang out with you and learn some cool stuff. <laughs> Amazing. I was saying to the team earlier, you may have noticed Tom always preaches from one of these, and I always preach from paper, and we've kind of made this sort of opposite kind of communication uh, journey based on our generations. Anyway. It's fantastic to be here. Uh, we are continuing in our series uh, through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're going to be looking at somebody who has extraordinary, extraordinary faith. Now, before we get started, uh, let me just ask a question. Um, how many people are praying for somebody they know to come and know Jesus? Amazing, amazing, fantastic. If you're not a Christian today, please don't worry. We're not kind of invoking some kind of dark magic to make you part of a cult. We, Jesus is the best thing that has ever happened to anyone, any person here, and our desire is that you would come to know him for yourselves. Now, people put your hands up. How many of you know that you are at least in part the answer to that prayer? You are at least in part, perhaps mostly, the answer to that prayer because whenever God wants to do something, he looks for a person through whom to fulfill his purposes. Every time. We see this from the very, very beginning. Ever since God created human beings, obviously he didn't create the universe through human beings. He kind of did that himself. But ever since then, ever since the creation of human beings, God has always looked for a person through whom to fulfill his plans and purposes. About 1,600 years ago, um, Augustine, the great um, early church father, said that without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. Without, without a God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. Now, make sure you get that the right way around there. Without him, we cannot. Without us, he will not. He always looks for a person through whom to fulfill his plans and purposes. And so it's not enough for us to simply pray and then just outsource action to somebody else somewhere else. If we want to see the purposes and plans of God fulfilled in this generation, we ourselves must be willing to step out in faith and obedience. And how do you feel about that? Does that excite you? Does that inspire you? Does that kind of intimidate you? Do you feel quite daunted by that? And if you're daunted, I think that's a good thing because stepping out in faith and saying yes to God is the most incredible thing we can possibly do, and yet it will always come at something of a cost to us. And the person that we're going to look at today is someone who said yes to God, and yet it cost her everything. She said yes to God, and it actually ended up costing her her dignity and her reputation, even some of her closest relationships, her comfort, and even safety. And yet in doing so, she saw the greatest blessing that God has ever brought and will ever bring on the face of the earth, because through her simple yes, Jesus, quite literally, comes into the world. And you may have guessed it from that introduction, but we're looking at the faith of Mary, now, as I've studied her this week, I've just been blown away by what an incredible person she was, what an incredible woman of faith she was. In human terms, Mary is completely uh, insignificant. There's nothing really remarkable about her at all. To start with, she's a teenager. If you're a teenager here, we love you. The world does not revolve around you. You are mostly insignificant. <laughs> Sorry, just gotta, I mean, I'm, not gonna, I'm not even going to retract that, that statement. We love you. God loves you, but 
It's not about you. <laughs> Secondly, she's a woman. Now, in this culture and context that we're speaking about, this means that she's at least a second-class citizen. And not only is she a woman and a teenager, but she's also unmarried, which means that she doesn't have any social status to speak of. She doesn't have any accomplishments, anything that would draw our attention to her whatsoever. And she lives in this backwards town in the middle of nowhere in, in a forgotten corner of Israel, so much so that the author actually has to give us details to tell us where it is. On human terms, there is nothing impressive about Mary, nothing significant about Mary, and yet she is the one that God chooses to call into his plans and purposes and through her to bring Jesus into the world. And it's incredible. God kind of plays chess, so to speak, on two levels. He's got this great master plan of rescue and salvation and redemption for the whole world, and yet he's calling individual people with their personal destinies. They get intertwined with his great plans. He's calling us into his great work of rescue and redemption, and yet along the way, our dreams and our personal needs are being met as well. And this is what we're going to see as we journey through these early stages of Luke. God always, always looks for a person through whom to fulfill his plans and purposes. And because of Mary's simple yet extraordinary faith, we are here today having a conversation 2,000 years later about her son. This is her story. Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. And it, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Something extraordinary happens to Mary in the course of this conversation. Because by all rights, but at the start of it, she should have been absolutely terrified of what the angel was saying to her. Forget the fact that there's like a seven-foot angel standing next to her. What he says to her should have filled her with dread. Because what he says is going to happen to her is going to ha have the highest possible consequences for her life. He's, she's told that she's going to conceive a child, and she's not yet married. Now, in our culture and context, that really doesn't really carry much in the way of a consequence, but in this culture, it does. Its, its implications are hugely significant. It's going to cost her her dignity and her reputation, because she's immediately going to be considered as an adulteress. It's going to cost her perhaps even her most important relationships. She, she, she runs the risk of her family ostracizing her because of this perceived shame. Or even her betrothed, and betrothed in this culture is a kind of legal engagement, her husband-to-be uh, breaking off that engagement, withdrawing that from her. Her comfort and security and safety, therefore, are also at risk because of this pronouncement. 
At best, this could, could result in her being ostracized by her community and forced to raise her child in poverty and in shame. And at worst, it could be a death sentence because in this culture, the penalty for adultery is death. These are all the things that Mary, I'm certain, would have been aware of as the angel begins to speak to her and tell her exactly what's going to happen to her. And she should have been afraid, and yet by the end of this conversation, she makes the most extraordinary statement. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Where there should have been fear and anxiety, Mary steps forward in faith. And the question is, how? What is it that transforms her fear, and certainly she would have felt fear at the start of this conversation, into faith, into bold obedience and surrender by the end of that conversation? Something, I believe, called favor. When Gabriel arrives, he greets Mary with this mysterious response. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And when she's a little bit perplexed by this, he reiterates the same thing. He says, you have found favor with God. Now, what is this favor we're talking about, and what difference does it make? It's recently been um, Oscar season. Anybody watch the Oscars? Anybody like films? Anybody interact with any kind of media? I'm trying to cast the, the net quite wide because you're... There we go. You're awake. Amazing. Remember, nobody else can see your face, but I can. Okay. Right. Good. And our national treasure, or one of them, and Olivia Coleman, had just won the Academy Award for Best Actress for a film called The Favorite. Has anybody heard of The Favorite? I'm not recommending you go and see this film, but the plot of this film will help us understand a little bit of what happens, when, uh, what we think of in terms of favor. And uh, this is the, the film, just if you don't know anything about it, is set in the reign of Queen Anne in sort of 17-something. And um, it's in the court of, uh, court of the Queen. Now, she's, the, she's the Queen of England at this point. And there's two courtiers who are called Sarah Churchill and Abigail Masham who are vying for the favor of the Queen, hence the name of the film. They want to be the favorite. Now, what this means is that they are trying to do things to get into her good graces, to earn her favor, to perform their way into her favor based on their performance and merit. And this is, generally speaking, what we tend to think of when we think of the idea of favor. It's about earning something, deserving something, fighting your way in, whether it's, I mean, presumably none of you are courtiers or anything like that. And with Queen Elizabeth at the moment, maybe you are. Let's have a conversation later. But... It could be in a workplace. You've seen this with bosses, people trying to get their way, slide their way into the good graces and the favor of your boss. Or it could be within a friendship group, particularly if you are one of those insignificant teenagers. I love you. Um, <laughs> we'll have a conversation about that later. Or um, even within a family, sometimes you see this kind of dynamic working itself out, people trying to outperform each other and gain the good graces, the favor of the person bestowing favor, and it's based upon um, performance. It's based upon merit in the eyes of the one bestowing the favor, Queen Anne or whoever it was. If they do what she likes and behave in a way that pleases her, they will earn her favor. Consequently, if they don't do that, they will fall out of her favor. This is not the kind of favor that the angel is speaking about here, not in the slightest. For starters, what has Mary actually done to merit any kind of favor? As far as we can see from the text, absolutely nothing. All that we're told about her before the angel shows up and says, you are highly favored, is just her backstory. And we've already seen that that is an insignificant backstory in human terms. There's nothing about her that should merit favor, so to speak. So why is she favored? 
The answer is that God's, God's favor is not like earthly favor in the slightest. And let's unpack this word for a moment. It's always good to zoom in on a concept or whatever, a word in the Bible, and really understand it, particularly through its original language. Now, we're not saying that you can't understand the Bible in English, but if you get on any good Bible app like biblehub.com or something and click on a word and it will explode it into Greek and then you'll see, wow, what a sophisticated language, what a completely unsophisticated language we have. So we say favor, the word here has way more connotations than we would even associate with it. So do that. Do yourself a favor. Get yourself a nice little Bible app or on the computer or whatever it is and look at the words. It's beautiful. It's powerful. The word for favor here that's being translated is the word charis and it has these incredibly rich connotations which are behind me right now. It's preeminently used of God's favor, which is freely extended to give himself away to people because he is always leaning towards them. Don't you just love that? Freely extended to give himself away to people. He's always leaning towards them. It corresponds with this Old Testament term, kana, which means grace or extension towards. And both of these refer to God freely extending himself, his favor, his grace, reaching out to people, inclining towards people because he is disposed to bless them. God chooses, unlike earthly favor, God chooses to bless people, to favor people, not on the basis of their performance and merit, but on the basis of who he is. It's because he is inclined that way. It's because his character is to bless. His character is to favor. His character is to extend mercy. Now, that's an incredible, incredible truth, and we'll unpack in a moment why it is that the holy God of the universe, who is above our, whose thoughts are above our thoughts, ways above our ways, can actually relate to people like you and me on that basis. We'll un- unpack that in a moment, but I want to move on and look at what is this favor for? Mary is, is favored by God, not because of anything she's done or hasn't done, but because of who he is, but she's not just favored for herself. God has not just come up to sort of bestow favor and blessing upon her for this kind of, I don't know, privatized sort of religious experience that she's going to have. It's it's for a purpose. And favor may start with, with us individually, but it cannot stop with us. God is always calling us into his purposes and plans. So what is this purpose that he's favoring her for? Look at verses 31 and 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. If you remember way back to the start of our series, which for you guys was probably like two weeks ago, is that right? We've, we've stolen a march in Edinburgh, and so we're one week ahead, but we're going to have this kind of cat and mouse sort of sermon thing through the whole year, and you're probably going to overtake us at some point. It's going to be great. Anyway, way back at the start of this series, the author, Luke, tells us that the reason he's writing his gospel is to testify about the things that have been accomplished among us, the things that have been fulfilled among us. That's what he's writing about. Now, as he, as he writes here, he's beginning to give us details of what it is that has been accomplished, that has been fulfilled. And I want to unpack the promises that are being made about Jesus uh, verse by verse here. Firstly, verse 31, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, again, that might seem in, insignificant to you because you've probably, presumably, heard the name of Jesus. You're in church, after all. <laughs> but his name is incredibly significant. Uh, Jesus is the Greek form of the, the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which means God saves or Yahweh saves, excuse me, Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Now, Yahweh is the, the proper name, the name of God in the Old Testament. And so whoever this Jesus is, his name literally means God saves. That's who he is. That's speaking to his purpose. That's who this child is going to be. 
Uh, verse 32 picks up uh, a little bit more about who he is, what he's going to be like. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And later in verse 35, the angel says, the child to be, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, pause for a minute, particularly if you are an existing Christian, and forget what you think you know about Jesus, because the significance of what's been communicated here is huge. Notice that the angel doesn't say he will be called a son of God, or a son of the Most High, but the Son of God, and the Son of the Most High. Last, last week, we unpacked uh, Zechariah in the temple, being given the promise that he would have a son, John the Baptist. Um, the angel didn't say, call him John the Baptist, but that's who we know him as. <laughs> But John is being raised up as a prophet, as a forerunner of actually his cousin Jesus here. But he is not called the Son of God. He is not called the Son of the Most High. Only Jesus is, is given this title in Scripture, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. What that tells us is that this Jesus, this baby that's going to be born, whose name Yeshua means God saves, is not just going to be a significant leader or a king or a prophet, but actually he is the Son of God. Luke's giving us detail upon detail here, building out this picture of who this Jesus is and what he's going to come and do. What's he going to come and do? Verse 32. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Normally, we read that at Christmas time in kind of Christmas readings, and we read it super fast and never unpack what it means. But what is going on there? We've got the, the throne of David, the, king, the house of Jacob, the tanning salon of Miguel. Like, what is happening here? We need to understand these things. That last part is not in the script, but I was hoping that you'd, uh, you'd notice it's not behind me. We need to un unpack kind of what these, these things mean, because they're all loaded with meaning that would have made a, a lot of sense to Mary, but doesn't make a lot of sense to us, frankly. Okay, a couple of things. The, the Bible is not primarily a, a book of religious rules and regulations, although it certainly includes those things. The Bible is primarily the story of who God is and what he has done to rescue his people. And the whole of Scripture is about this story. Now, way back at the start of this story, the Garden of Eden, Genesis, the fall, God makes a promise saying that even in the midst of the chaos and the brokenness and the falling apart of everything that happens when Adam and Eve, our first parents, disobey God and introduce sin into the world, even in that moment of just betrayal and chaos, God says, I will send somebody who's going to put this right. I will send somebody who will undo what has been undone, who will make things right one day. And the rest of the scriptures, and particularly the rest of the Old Testament, is a search for this person. It's certainly the history of Israel. It's certainly got all kinds of things, psalms and poetry and prophecy and all kinds of things going on there. But one lens to understand it through is that they are looking for, searching for, who is this descendant? Who is this person? He promises to Eve. He says, one of your descendants is going to come and do this. And it's almost like every generation is looking and saying, is it him? Is it him? Is it him? You see this across the Old Testament. At one point, we're given, uh, well, all the way through, really, we're given kind of glimpses and clues and trailers and kind of hints and nudges saying, this is what he's going to be like. This is what his kingdom is going to look like. This is what he's going to accomplish all the way through the Old Testament. One of those places is in the rule of a guy called David. Anybody heard David and Goliath? If you have any cursory knowledge of Christianity, you may have heard his name or if you follow sports teams. Anyway, David, most famous king of Israel, greatest king of Israel. At the end of his reign, God gives him a promise, and that promise gives us a bit of detail as, opposed, uh, the, the, um, a bit of detail as to who this person is going to be. Remember that the whole story is about finding out who this person is going to be and what they're going to do. And God says to him, David, you're going to have a descendant, a, a descendant of yours is going to be on the throne of your kingdom one day forever. He makes this promise, 2 uh, Samuel chapter 7. You can look it up. 
So when the angel shows up to Mary and says, this, says these words, the, 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 the God's going to give uh, Jesus the, the throne of his, his father David and he's going to rule over the house of Jacob, she knows what that means because this is an ancient promise that's been embedded in the Jewish people that one day God is going to put a descendant of David on the throne forever. And that will probably sound like awesome news for her because she's a young woman in a, a territory under Roman occupation and oppression right now. So she probably hears this and thinks, amazing, this is when we get to kick the Romans out. This is when this whole thing gets fulfilled. God is sending this descendant of David who's going to have this eternal kingdom. But why should we care about that? We're, I mean, most of us, I presume, are not first century Jewish people under Roman occupation, right? Why should this promise mean anything to us? Why should we care about it? Well, think about who's writing this. Remember, Luke, so important that we understand the authorship of, uh, of these texts. Luke, we know, is a Gentile. He's not a Jewish person. He's a non-Jewish person. He's writing primarily to a non-Jewish audience. And so while we have this deeply Jewish promise being fulfilled here, its significance must go beyond just the geopolitical concerns of Israel. It must have significance, otherwise he wouldn't have included it. And this is the significance of it. This kingdom is coming. This kingdom is about to arrive. This king is about to be put on the throne of, of that kingdom. What matters is the kind of king he's going to be and the kind of kingdom he's going to usher in. Thirty years after this promise is given, four chapters later, if you're following it in your Bible, this same Jesus is going to stand up in this same town, Nazareth, and he's going to give his mission manifesto, so to speak. And this is what he says. This is Luke 4, beginning in the 17th verse. Jesus, by the way, does a hugely bold move at this point because he goes to preach in his hometown. I'm uh, not from here. <laughs> I'm not from Edinburgh either. But the idea of going to preach in my hometown where people think they understand and know who I am and saw me grow up from zero to and be an insignificant teenager, that's a bold move. <laughs> Jesus is going back to his hometown where everybody thinks they know him. And this is what he says about himself. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. He's in the synagogue at this point. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember the thing we're talking about here. Favor. Mary's favorite. She's favored for a purpose. What is that purpose? Here it is. Jesus is coming to proclaim the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and sat down. It's kind of like this mic drop moment. And he, everybody's looking at him. All the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And if he was a millennial in the 21st century, he'd probably have said hashtag boom at this point. And it's a bold claim. It's an extraordinary claim. This is Jesus saying, this is who I am. This is what I've come to do. He is the good news to the poor. He is the recovery of sight to the blind. He's the one who's going to set at liberty those who are in captive. And he is the one, there it is again, who is going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's good news. And yet something in this exchange would have been conspicuously absent for his original hearers of this text because the text that he's citing, which is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, continues after the point where Jesus stopped speaking. Jesus has actually omitted a part of the scripture here. Now, Christians, we're really good at this all the time because we like to grab onto promises of God and say, I'm a beloved child of God and all these kind of things. And then we totally ignore the parts that are a little bit more prickly and challenging at the end of the texts. For example, anybody know the song No Longer Slaves? 
Great song, beautiful song, world-changing song. It's, it's based out of Romans 8, which says that we're, we're, not, we're no longer slaves to fear, but children of God. We've been adopted into his family. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're going to share Jesus' inheritance. And then the verse says, provided that we suffer with him so, long that, uh, so that we might be glorified with him. Now, there's no, that's not in the song. They don't, we don't quote that. We're, we're really good at this. We like to pull promises out and drop the hard bits, drop the challenging bits. Is this what Jesus is doing here? Do you think this is what Jesus is doing? Do you think he's afraid, like, oh my goodness, I've got to soften this because if I say the vengeance thing, it's going to get stressful. He's not doing this. This is what he's, he's, he's missed out. Pop it up there for me. Say, exact same scripture. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and then this, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus omits that from his, his prophecy about himself. He's pulling out and saying, this is who I am. Now, why has he missed that out? Is he afraid? Is he concerned about his ratings or if anyone's going to come back to synagogue next week? If you know anything about Jesus, you know he is not concerned about that at all. He's totally unafraid. He's the most unafraid person that's ever walked the face of the earth. So why has he left this off? Church, if there's one thing you get out of this message, I pray that it's this. He has left this vengeance off the end of this proclamation about himself because the vengeance of God is not going to fall upon the people who deserve it, but the one who is proclaiming this about himself right now. It's going to fall upon Jesus. Human favor, remember human favor, quarter Queen Anne slash Olivia Coleman, is built on the basis of performance and merit. And therefore, it's something that we think we earn, we deserve. And sometimes, for whatever reason, in our tremendous human wisdom slash complete foolishness, we often assume this is a good way to relate to God. Shouldn't he accept us and even bless us on the basis of our performance and our merits? Haven't we earned the right to be favored by God, or to put it in language that you've probably heard, won't God accept me if I'm a good person? Ever heard that? Right? All the time, people always stressing out, but why can't God just be chill? And this is a huge problem, because what those ideas, and they're out there, and they're in our hearts, betray is a a jaw-droppingly, bewilderingly overinflated sense of the goodness and the worthiness and the deservingness of human beings and an absurd and frankly damning low view of the glory and justice of God. Because remember, this is not some earthly king or queen we're trying to impress here. This is God. God himself, the God who spoke the universe into being, whose thoughts are above our thoughts, whose ways are above our ways, who is holy completely unlike us in every way. Now, compared to other people, and we do this all the time, I mean, what's the point of social media apart from to compare your life to those of others and to show how awesome you are, right? Just be real. Compared to other people, you might think you have performance and merits that merit something. But compared to the holiness of God, compared to the glory and the beauty and the wonder of who he is, who are we trying to kid? Our best efforts, your best effort, and you need to know this wherever you are, your most noble achievement pales in comparison to the glory of who God is. He's not impressed by us. And worse than that, actually, the things that we hide from our spiritual CV, so to speak, our failures, our mistakes, our sin and our shame, our brokenness and our weakness, the things that we hide from each other, we don't, you're not posting on your Instagram and your Facebook right now. Those are the kind of things that mean from far from deserving the favor of God, the only thing that God owes you and any of us is his perfect justice against us, or as Isaiah puts it here, the vengeance of our God. 
It's bad news. The gospel is bad news before it becomes good news because here's the good news. This vengeance of God, this perfect justice against the people who have completely failed him, who have completely abandoned him, who, who shake their heavens, shake their fists, excuse me, at the heavens almost every day and complain about who he is and all the rest of it. The justice that God owes us is the thing that Jesus has come to tackle head on. This Jesus who's been born to bring this, this God saves, Yahshua is his name. This one who is the son of God, this one who's come to establish this kingdom where the spirit of the Lord rests upon him and all these beautiful things we've just read about, this is what he's come to deal with. Because on the cross, Jesus takes the vengeance of God. He takes the the justice of God against all of us for all of our wrongdoing. He takes it upon himself and experiences the full punishment of God against it so that in its place, we can experience the favor of God. The favor of God, the favor of the king of all kings, is based on performance and merit, but it's based on the performance and merit of his perfect son who lived a life that we could not live, that we should have lived, but we could not. He lived that life in our stead. He offers that life in exchange for ours at the cross. The Father accepts it, and because of Jesus, we can experience the favor of God. Somebody say amen. It's good news, and it's a sheer gift. You could not earn it. There's nothing you've done to deserve it. And yet it is offered to you freely in Jesus to all who will trust and follow him. And because it's a gift like that, it's not something you can lose. You can lose earthly favor by falling falling out of favor through your behavior. You cannot lose the favor of God because it was never up to you to earn it in the first place. It was earned by his perfect son. And he offers it to you as a gift. I will not apologize for getting emotional there because this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what we are all about. This is the gospel. Because of Jesus and only Jesus, the favor of God has been extended to us. Not on the basis of our merits, but on his. And God comes, like Mary, not only to bestow that that favor, that blessing upon us, but to see it extended through us to come and touch those around us. God has a purpose for your life, and it's not just that he would extend his favor to you, but through you, his favor would be extended to the end of your street, and the end of your office cubicles, and and your your school, and your neighborhood, and this this Wester Inch, this glorious metropolis that we're standing in today, (sighs) Bathgate, Edinburgh, the Lothians, the nations, This is the purpose of God. It's beautiful. And it's completely above us, completely beyond us to accomplish in any way. This is what happens with Mary. She she looks at the extraordinary promise of God that he's going to bring this Jesus to bear. He's going to change the world, bring the favor of God to bless nations. And she looks at herself and her complete inadequacy for the task. And she says, how will this be? In her case, because she's a virgin. How is this going to happen? And the angel turns to her. And she say, he says to her the most amazing promise. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And there's not an exact correlation for us here. Please don't misunderstand me. You are not going to be impregnated with the perfect Son of God. That's happened. That's a one-time event. But think about this. Jesus says that the same Holy Spirit who brought him into the, the earth the same Holy Spirit who the Scriptures will later later tell us, raised Christ from the dead, that that same Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in the life of a believer. Now, can there therefore be any upper limit to what he might accomplish through you? God is not looking for people based on our ability, but based on our availability. 
a willingness to trust him. This is what he found in Mary, someone who was willing to say yes. Don't consider your inability for what God's called you to do. And God has called you to do much and to see, to see nations and cities changed by the power of the gospel. And you and I are completely inadequate for the task. And that doesn't matter. It's kind of the point. Because the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who breathed Jesus into, into Mary's womb, the same Spirit who raised that Jesus from the, from the grave, the same Spirit who was poured out once that Jesus had ascended to be with his Father in the heavens again and who turned the world upside down, is the same Holy Spirit who is available to each one of us. Nothing, as the angel says, nothing will be impossible with God. The angels answered Mary's practical question, how will this be? And now the text or the story turns to her. And although he doesn't ask it, the question now turns to Mary and, and by default to us. How then will we respond? She's been given this promise. She's been shown how it's going to happen. She knows the cost that it's going to cost her. How is it she's going to respond? God is promising her that what he's about to do through her is the fulfillment of this ancient promise from the very beginning, his faithfulness to his people. He is sending his son, Jesus, Yeshua, God saves into the earth to bring about this kingdom that's going to change everything, to extend his favor to the world. And yet by saying yes, it is going to cost Mary something. It's going to cost her her dignity, her reputation, her relationships. It's going to cost her pretty much everything that her world is about. And that is the cost of faith. There will always be a cost. There will always be a cost for each one of us. Whether or not you're a follower of Jesus today, there is a cost to this. It may cost you your dignity and reputation because people might look at you and say, what are you doing following the ancient teachings of this 2,000-year-old rabbi that probably just died? People will look at you and say, aren't you smarter than this? Can you really believe this? It may cost you some of your closest relationships. We, we all know somebody who had the experience of turning to Christ and seeing their family perhaps ridicule them, but perhaps even cut them off. It happens all the time. It may even cost you your security and your comfort because Jesus doesn't call us to live comfortable lives, but to see his favor and his kingdom extended on the face of the earth. Saying yes to Christ will always cost you something. Always. We can't sugarcoat this thing and say, it's a bed of roses. No. Look at the lives of the apostles, the 12 guys that followed Jesus from day one. All but one of them died at the hands of persecution. What a wonderful advert for Christianity, right? It will always cost us something. But when you have a revelation of the reward of faith, the favor of God, that we get God, that my heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire beside you. When that lands in your spirit and you realize I get God, I get his favor, I get to be with him forever, no sacrifice and no cost will ever be as much. And this is what Mary does. This is what she does. She's convinced of the favor of God and she says this unbelievable yes. She says, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. May it be to me as you have said. Because of that simple yet radical act of faith, the favor of God comes not only to her, but to nations. We are sitting here 2,000 years later because of this teenage girl in Israel said yes to the great purposes of God, stepped in with the measure of faith that she had, and through her, everything changed. It's incredible. 
Nations have been impacted by the humble obedience of this young woman of faith. And I want you to think about this. Imagine for a moment what God could do with your yes. Imagine and dream with him for a moment. What could he do with your yes? What could be the upper limit of what God could accomplish through your life with the same Holy Spirit that raised his son from the dead beating in your chest? I love this story. We read it at Christmas time and we read it too quickly. And as Tom and I began to put this series together, we were like, you know, we've just had Christmas. Can we really read this scripture all over again? And we looked at it and we looked at these stories and we said, yes, absolutely. I love the faith of Mary. It's interesting. In, in Edinburgh, we actually meet in a, in a Catholic high school. And so I'm always conscious of like perhaps saying too much about Mary because we don't deify her. We don't hold her in that esteem. But we should hold her as a fellow child of God in such high esteem because of her faith. And that's a faith that each and every person here today, wherever you're from, whatever background you have, you can step into that faith because all it requires is saying yes to the promises of God. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want to make a a couple of calls for a couple of groups of people here today. And please have your eyes closed and your head bowed at this moment. This is between us and God. But if you're here today and you have never responded to this call of God, the call to come and follow him. You've never experienced the favor of God in your life. You've never known this Jesus. You've never said yes to him. And today you want to to say yes to him and follow him with all that you are, regardless of the cost. I just invite you to raise your hand and I want to know who I'm praying with and for. If that's you, just raise your hand this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. And for those of us who know Christ, I'm going to pray, with, pray with, for you in a moment as well, but um, uh, for those of you who, who know Christ, who've been walking with Jesus for years, God is calling each one of us to step out in faith today, to give our simple yes to him regardless of the cost. And it may be reaching out to that person in your office that doesn't know you're a believer. It may be inviting those neighbors over that you haven't spoken to before. It may be getting around um, an evangelist or something, it, it, stepping into the purposes of God to see what he could do with your life. And you sense God is calling me this morning to step in and to say yes to him, regardless of the cost. I want his favor to rest upon me, and I want that favor to go to nations. If you sense God is calling you to do something of an act of faith this week, I want you to raise your hand as well, and I want to pray with you. If that's you, please raise your hand. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. All right. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here this morning. Thank you for those who are making that commitment of faith for the first time. We bless them in Jesus' Jesus' name. Thank you that your favor will rest upon them now and for the rest of their life because the favor of God does not depend on our performance, our best achievements, nor our worst failures do, do not qualify or disqualify us from your favor because it has been established through Jesus who gave his life for us on the cross. I thank you that that favor right now is being given and poured out into the lives of those who are saying yes to you this morning. And Father, for those of us who know you and have walked with you for years, God, we give ourselves again a fresh opportunity to say yes to you. We lay aside the cost. We lay aside our dignity, our reputation, the things we cling to so tightly, and we say yes to you. We say, may your kingdom come, this glorious kingdom of which we've spoken this morning. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so that the name of your son Jesus can be glorified and many can come to know his saving power. We ask these things if for the glory of the name of Jesus, the name above all names, the worthy one, the only one who is worthy of our praise. We ask it for his glory, for our good, and for the sake of nations. 
Amen. Amen.